Hi people, I'm Lizzie Metham and this is People My Dog Would Like, where I get to speak with interesting people about their game-changing ideas, fresh initiatives and out-of-the-box movements with an eye on the future. Today my guest is John Yeo. Whether there's an audience of one or a thousand, John believes we need to be able to quickly and effectively build rapport. John helps executives and brands design a meaningful and compelling brand story that connects and engages audiences. John is the curator of TEDx Melbourne, one of the largest and longest running TED events in the world, and is also chapter president of Professional Speakers Australia. He's got celebrity status in our gorgeous town of Melbourne, and so I'm completely chuffed that he agreed to come on the show. Hi John, welcome to People My Dog. Hello, hi Lizzie, how you doing? I'm pretty good, how are you? Good, good. I wouldn't say celebrity status quite yet, but... Oh, um... everyone knows you John, everyone <laughs> knows you. Okay, so listen, you convened some, some big events in Australia, particularly mm. TEDx, obviously. So I imagine you've uh, seen a lot of people naked, am I right? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely their minds. Like, uh, one of the things that's interesting about um, a lot of the people I get to speak with is the genuine surprise that I've actually reached out and asked them to speak in the first place. It's really fascinating in terms of people go, I don't know why you're reaching out. Um, I've been doing this for decades, it just happens to be topical now. Wow. And so a lot of the people I work with are actually quite humble about what they do. And so one of the things we're exploring this year for our events theme is is that very fact that people who achieve extraordinary things don't feel they're doing extraordinary things, they're just persistent for unusually long periods of time. Yeah, and so this year I noticed that you'd given them a bit of a stage to perhaps yeah. tell their story. Yeah, absolutely. Look, in any in any message, whether it's an event or a brand or anything like that, we're always challenged by the one thing is keeping people's attention, the ability to capture people's attention, what I call engagement. People have various words for that. But also on top of that, to maintain that relevance for that audience over the long term. Mm. And so uh, we're always balancing those two ends of the spectrum. With our event in particular, we like to think that because we understand our community well, and we can talk about how I do that later, um, Mm. I think we do a better than average job in maintaining that, but it gets harder every year. Okay. So, well, before we go on to the TED event and to the TED ecosystem, I think, because it's a huge world phenomenon now... um, you know, I met you recently and I was interested in your take on the future, actually. Mm. It was it was similar to mine. But right now I'd love to know a little bit more about what brought you to the TED stage in the first place. I love TED as a as a as a brand because of the principles that stuck that underpin it, which is arguably mm. well everyone knows it, ideas worth spreading, but future focus, positive, optimistic creative, resourceful, resilient type people tend to hang around that space. And when you hang around that type of space with that type of community, it always creates a sense of optimism. Yeah. And so the excitement and energy and focus of that um, is, is really what I think really keeps my attention on, 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 on that crowd or that tribe. They're my people. And so I got involved mostly for that reason. There is a community out there that's willing to challenge themselves mm. and explore the possibility of, 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 of the future. Yeah, they've got some inspiring ideas. They, you know, some of them are very charismatic characters, aren't they? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm lucky enough to meet some of the, probably some of the smartest people in the country. Yes, I've um, noticed that. Doing a little bit of research yeah. on you, I thought, my God, it was yeah. fascinating reading about you, but it was fascinating reading about all of the speakers that have been yeah. to these events. I, the simplest way to I describe it is kind of smart people doing clever things. Yeah. And, you know... And creating, in some ways, movements. I mean, yeah. that's something that I certainly was a takeaway for me yeah. when I was listening to some of these incredible people, you know, yeah. some less known than others, mm-hmm. but very, very powerful messages. I think all of them are driven by a, a primary driver of some description. The, the, I think that's the key differentiator, whether they're famous or not. Is they're, they're driven by this singular focus of something that's deeply important to them. Yes. And we, we were discussing that, you know, 
I think a lot of power can be, and resilience and persistence and all the other things that you want from a striving point of view comes from that singular focus. You've got to be almost um, beholden to your to your passion, passion and exactly. Yeah, and persistence. Absolutely. I mean, it's the persistence that I, I guess you notice when you contact these people and they perhaps don't know why you've contacted them. Yeah. But they've been working at it for years. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, something that really resonated with me when we spoke um, was the conversation we had around storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the best storytellers in the world end up on the TED stage, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. What do you think makes for good storytelling? Oh, good question. So for me, in its simplest sense, storytelling is a function of three things. Content, which you can gather from anywhere. Context, which is really around the reason that that, that scenario exists in the first place. Mm. But also for an audience to relate to them and for them why this information is relevant to them. And the final one is really around intent, which is why, why are you really there? Um, no one likes to be sold to or lectured, unless you're in a sales meeting or a, maybe a class. But for the rest of the time, if they don't trust why you're speaking to them, then they won't necessarily be that excited by what you've got to say, even if it's clever or important. And the analogy I like to give there is, you know, TED Talks are 18 minutes, but you would never go to a dinner party, sit next to a complete stranger and say, let me talk about myself for the next 18 minutes. You'll be fascinated. Mind you, I have been to dinner parties and people are so fascinated that does with themselves that, that does they do talk for 18 yeah. minutes, John, let's be honest. But, but, but great storytelling is really around how you build that empathy and rapport. How do you build that trust? How do you build that relationship? And the intent part of that, I think, is lost on a lot of storytellers. Yes, They're much okay. more interested in the mechanics of storytelling, whether it's you know Joseph Campbell or yeah. any of the other traditional mechanics. Or maybe they have their own framework but um, I, I think there's an assumption there made by by many by many brands and many storytellers that I think really needs to have a much stronger sense of place and position in the relationship and in a way when you say that what I think about is in some ways there has to be a seed of resonance doesn't there exactly there has to be something that the audience or the individuals in that audience not even necessarily a part of the community, they're part of the TED community, sure. but that they feel that they can, that they understand what that person on the stage is talking about. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and there's something innately human, usually too. Yeah, for sure. And you know, if you can focus on that bit that's innately human, and that singular, simple, hyper-focused idea, then I think, um, storytelling actually becomes much more um, not not only less complicated but actually much more interesting and, and easier to engage with easier to follow easier to follow and quite profound mm. too I think that if you have all of those ingredients it's very very powerful with Absolutely. with you know um, movements with really good ideas I mean I talk about people my dog would like being <coughs> talking to you know interesting people about their you know out of the box movements and initiatives and yeah I think Ted really <coughs> represents that yeah, excuse me I've got a bit of a tickle in my throat at the moment that's okay have some more have some more <coughs> I'll ask you something else so yeah. who are some of the best storytellers you've come across oh had wow. to ask that and, and it, mm, uh, mm. I mean Look, listeners on, a, I on our stage or just in general you know in general, I think in general it would be fascinating to know. I mean, I don't want yeah. to put you on the spot either yeah. because you've met so many amazing storytellers that have, you know, been convened by you and invited by you. Yeah. I don't want you to feel like you're limiting yourself to that group. Uh, look, I, I think there are there are many great orators out there, uh, apart from the cliches like you know your, your JFK's "Man on the Moon" speech and you know, mm. and, and such. Um, the one person that's probably been able to consistently do it very, very well, in, in especially in recent times, is is probably Steve Jobs, right. because he's able to connect to the heart of the challenge that his tribe or his his client base really are, are about, which is ultimately creating a ding in the universe at, at a big picture level. But even when he was selling his iPod. 
you know, most of the technologies around then were IT companies and they were selling features like the screen size or the memory capacity. Yeah, a tech feature. Exactly. And Steve came out and said a thousand songs in your pocket. Mm. You know, and no one knows how many songs you can get in X megabytes of memory, mm. but they get a thousand songs in your pocket. And he was really able to create a space where people could relate to the ideas that he had to share for with them. Yeah, well, it's, he could relate to the humanness of what people were after. Absolutely. You know. So are there any others apart from Steve? Ah, uh, look, I mean, well, if you think about all the great the, the people that have really made great impacts on the planet, they almost all of them have been great storytellers to some degree. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can, Very you, true. You go back, you know, before the written word, sorry, not before the written, before technology as we know it, mm. yeah, Christ was a storyteller. Mm. Yeah? Krishna was a storyteller. Buddha was a storyteller. Mm. Mm, of course. None of them wrote books. They just shared what I call first principle wisdom. Yeah. Um, and then any great fable, you know, does exactly the same sort of thing. Mm. There's a core storyline or story arc that people can relate to that's meaningful, that's human, that's extends before beyond, oh, that was interesting. Mm. That's actually got a real human story underneath it, a real... Um, well, a real hook. You don't forget absolutely. it, do you? Yeah. When you've left that person, I think that's the power for me of a storyteller. A good storyteller is when you've left that person, you're still thinking about what they were talking about. And you, for whatever reason, can't get it out of your mind for a while. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and you know, even great myths do that. And, yeah. you know, so George Lucas spent an extraordinary amount of time studying the structure of myth. Yes, right. To really get the Star Wars story out there. Yeah, okay. But, uh, you know, if you want to... I mean, you could spend a, a lifetime deconstructing Star Wars, but it's essentially... Too... Let's not do that. Here, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I mean, I love Star yeah. Wars. But... but, I mean, the, the, the principles underneath that were, were sound, and I think that's one of the reasons this longevity is still, still relevant. Yeah, good versus evil, mm. wasn't it? I mean, it's something that we've... You see in all stories, certainly yeah. American ones. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, why do you think storytelling is so important right now? I'm certainly noticing a renaissance in yeah. storytelling. Certainly in Australia, I'm seeing it in Western societies as well. But that's only because I'm not in Asia. Yeah. I'm sure it's there as well. Yeah, I think the challenge for well any brand, organisation, or individual in terms and why storytelling is important is really around. Every single day we get bombarded with a thousand messages, mm. emails, tweets, phone calls, you name it. Any sort of input that can possibly come at it is currently coming at us, which everyone knows. But the ability, we're connected, but, but are we having intimate conversations but and storytelling? Yeah, I yeah. think storytelling allows us to do that. Yeah. I, I think it creates that space where people can suspend their realities uh, imagine something that might not necessarily exist currently and move together on a journey mm. that's meaningful. I love that. That's very similar to what I talk about with preferred futures planning, you know, mm. and doing that backcasting. Yeah. And thinking about, let's talk about the metaphor that you want for the future, that preferred future. Yeah. And let's start planning for that. Let's do that together. Absolutely. It doesn't need to be this fearful new economy that everyone's terrified about. Exactly. Um, now, listen, I love the theme of this year's TED event, mm-hmm. um, Rebels and Revolutionaries, it's called. I love the mm. idea. And, and us. And us. And That's us. the most important part. Oh, okay. I'm so sorry. Yeah. No, look, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of people I speak to go, I don't know why you're coming to me. I'm not doing anything special. But what that's what's interesting to me. The and us bit is really around why do we put people on pedestals? And then why do we get so bitterly disappointed when they don't meet our expectations? Why aren't we actually being the revolutionaries? Mm. Why aren't we choosing to persist in the things that are most important to us, whether that's environmentalism, sustainability, whether that's women's rights, whether that's equality, diversity, all the other things that, 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 that people are craving for, I think, mm. but no one really in leadership is, is fundamentally addressing. They're kind of dressing up in nice clothes and talking about it, but I personally don't think at a global level anything's really happening. And it's that 
distinct lack of faith in leadership that has caused the Brexits and the Trumps to thrive. Mm. And do you, I, I mean, what I'm sensing and what you're talking about there is that there's a real passivity there waiting for a leader to actually verbalise what they, you know, in order for them to construct what that, you know, new idea or new beginning could be like. Yeah. And I would argue there isn't one out there and that there won't be one. It will be actually the one we make and it's the one we make of ourselves. Mm. That's the power Which is of, the us. Ex- that's exactly the us. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm very, very sorry that I missed no, the No, that's us. all right. Um, what I was going to say was that I loved the idea and I wondered if there was a little bit of a rebel in you. I'd mentioned to you how often yeah. I was concerned that I might may offend yep. and come across as a bit blunt when I spoke to you a couple <laughs> of weeks ago. Yeah. Sometimes people see me as even rude, John. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when we chatted about this, you said you didn't care if people didn't like what you had to say. And I was surprised by that. What What's led you to feeling well, that way? Uh, that's a good... I think it's a few things. Um, I'm Asian, I've got an Asian background. To, to be completely honest, in a white Australia, I actually never felt part of the country to begin with. Right. And ironically, I actually feel more at home in the south of France, for instance, or even in Japan than I do in Melbourne, even though I was brought up here, grew up here and spent almost my entire life here. Wow. So I think that's part of it, this contributing factor. I think the other part was really um, a principle around east-west thinking, about outside-inside. What do you mean by east-west thinking? So if, if you go back to Asian culture, the longest documented civilization on the world is the Chinese. Yes. And oh, so my dad was brought up um, pretty much saying, well, we're the longest running civilization in history. And then he grew up in British occupied Malaysia, or right. Malaya as called back then, mm. who also claimed the same thing. And my dad said, well, they can't both be right. Mm. So it actually caused him to go back and study the history and culture. And one of the interesting things that he discovered, and the same thing that I discovered, although we never actually spoke about it consciously, was the fact that um, when you peel away the cultural overlays, you get to see what is actually inherently human and what is inherently influenced by brands or culture or history. Yeah. And when you actually understand the human aspect, that's where real connection happens. That's where storytelling really has its real strength. Mm. It's around things like love and loyalty and contribution and you know, is that you know and all the things that might pull you off that pathway, which mm. is the quote unquote evil. It's so easy to take the easy path. It's so easy to take the the you know the, the less the, the, disciplined the, path. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And the harder decisions. Exactly. And so that human struggle is really the bit that I'm most interested in and that's where Ted continually plays as well it's not like these ideas are not necessarily people agree with or even know or understand that well but they are places it is a space intellectually where people can come together consider opposing views and make their own decisions based on their own values about whether that's appropriate for them Mm. and I think that the ability for someone to hold opposing ideas in their head is a great sense, uh, uh, I guess, a great um, show of character. Mm. And strength and yeah, resilience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you can't hold opposing ideas in your head, mm. then you're arguably losing your relevance and your ability to decide whether what is ultimately right or wrong mm. based on what's happening today. Mm. I'd have to agree. I think resilience, and also, how do you, how do you, communicate with others if you don't have the resilience of mind to manage the fact that they may disagree with you, yeah, or have different views to you or values to you, yeah. So when I say I have no qualms about people disagreeing with me, what I'm really saying there is, have I made an assumption that I've, you know, maybe is incorrect or is my rationale or logic as sound as I thought it was 
Yeah, I think what I was struck by more than anything was it was the the solidity of the statement, which was, I don't care if people don't like me, mm. Lizzie. Well... And I thought... You can't run that. your life that way. You can't I run loved your it, life. though. <laughs> I mean, but you're a convener. Yeah. I mean, you're constantly trying yeah. to placate, make sure that everyone's getting their, you yeah. know, their time to shine, that, you know, that there's, you know, that they're not competing with each other. I mean, you're the yeah. arch diplomat in that yeah. role. Well, my, my role for TEDx Melbourne is curator. And yeah. so it's not program director, which is what a lot of conference organisers are. They're program directors. They mm. pick a direction and they steer or find speakers that are contextually relevant for that conference's outcome. Mm. And that's, that's fine. TED's never been like that. A curator is really, what are some of the ideas that we could bring in our space that we could consider, contemplate and experience? And then people make their own judgment, which is why the curator is perfect title for an art museum. Yes, Because you don't necessarily need to like the art, you just need to understand, well, what's the history of that artist? What's the background of art as it currently is? And is this a medium that we can currently experience and, and agree or not whether mm. it's appropriate? You know, Jackson Pollock for all his art was heavily resisted at mm. his time. But mm. it was at a time where it, the expression of his art was a lot less about the mechanics of good execution and much more about the expression of art in and of itself. Mm. And so that was what was actually revolutionary, whether you liked what you saw on the canvas or not. Mm. And so throughout the ages, different art history pieces have been influential in terms of the way we think and experience the world simply because of the way that the artists have chosen to express themselves. And so why just do a speaking version of that? Mm. Well, you take. I think what you're doing is in the curating space. Is for me, a curator takes you on a journey. Yes, and absolutely. that's what I love about curation. And a good curator holds you the whole way, where you feel held. Uh, it resonates, and it kind of tickles your curiosity in a in a myriad of ways. Yeah, and that's you know that's partly why I think TED has become so successful because absolutely. It isn't one program, one theme, you know, I mean, you talk yeah. about the theme of rebels, revolutionaries and us, but really, I mean, there's a big, that's a big basket, isn't it? That's a yeah. big, that's a wide absolutely. brush that you could have speakers yeah. in. Absolutely. And, and so... Uh, I mean, some of the speakers, let's be honest, the speakers are just mind-blowing this year. Do you want to talk uh, a little bit about that? Sure, sure. I mean, yeah, probably the most well-known of the mm. speakers is a guy called Deng Ortut who was abducted as a six-year-old and forced to fight in, 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 I think in South Sudan mm. as a child soldier. He's now a uh, human rights lawyer mm. and is adamant about the future of youth and the opportunities we create for our young people. And human rights is just one of the aspects he chooses to stand where he draws a line and stands says no more. Mm. You, know, the, you can compromise a child's experience er, up to every point until here. And yeah. Then, you know, and then the fundamental human rights is something he, he where he says this is why I'll make my stand. And so, if you think about him, he had no social social constructs growing up. Mm. He lived on an entire life of improvisation and survival. Uh, has no qualms about what. You know the, the impact evil can have on the world, and is willing to, without uh, uh, apology, hold a position that he believes is most important. And he he's probably the most extreme example of why you shouldn't be worried about people thinking what you think. You've got to do what you believe. That's right. And he's you know, I mean he's a he's a north star, isn't he? He's absolutely. Incredible. And you know, like it or not. He, he, he stands for what he believes in. And I think there are too many people that compromise too much. Mm. And that's why we get too many compromises around oh, pretty much every issue you can imagine. Oh, it's just it's, it's crippling, we, isn't it? And then it? we, we, we have about... excuses to cover excuses to cover excuses. I mean, it's the whole 
I mean, it, it's political correctness exactly. too. Exactly. I mean, let's be honest, we're in Australia. It's yeah. a fairly conservative country now. Mm. I don't know whether it's always been like that, but it certainly feels like it today. Yeah. I, I think we always have. I think we like to think we're progressive, but I think we're progressive in very narrow fields of, of, of experience, and we like to think that that applies to everything we do. And I, I've never felt like Australia's been that mm. open-minded. We just happen to be less bogged down by political instabilities, um, economic instabilities, history, all the other things that may hold up other longer. Mm. Although, mind you, the history, I don't know, I don't even want to go into that. That's just too (laughs) big a conversation. But, yeah, Australia's Australia's challenging. I've done a lot of travel and lived overseas uh, extensively too, and I, I struggle with Australia's mindset. You know, Australians feeling that they're quite progressive yeah and yet we're still fighting for marriage equality i mean yeah. what's that about yeah uh, it's just all you know uh, you know gender parity for pay yeah like did you know today it's equal pay day today is it john yes it's equal pay oh. day today okay and it's also lip timber so it's a fundraising month in right. September to raise money for women in mental health, particularly right. in Indigenous areas around the country. Right. I yeah. did not know that. I, I should have brought some lipstick for mm. you, so we could have <laughs> we could have had this interview. We could have with some lippy on darling to raise some money yeah. for mental health for yeah. women. But yeah, I mean that's what I mean by I struggle with the mindset of Australians that feel that. They're progressive, yeah. and yet I often challenge them, and people say, "Gee, Lizzie, you, you're so angry." And I go, mm. "Well, what are you doing? Mm. You know, mm. why are you still watching Survivor? Yeah, why are you at home watching TV? Yeah. There's there's really important things that you really need to start thinking about for your future generation or for your kids if you've got kids. Yeah, absolutely. Ah, uh, I don't watch TV either. Um, it's I mean, I watch TV occasionally, but I do <clears throat> despair. I think that's mm. probably the best word for it. I yeah. despair at the passivity that happens because you're just talking to people that are watching TV that have switched off a bit because things are changing so rapidly. They don't quite engage with the leadership. They don't quite understand the messages. They don't quite understand what's going to happen in the future, so they switch off. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an easy excuse, and that's the problem. They've, they've given up on responsibility for their life and then happy to point fingers when it doesn't go their way. Yeah. That, that, that I have a problem with. Well, it's a very, very tough place to be for the future, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, mean, I call it small island syndrome. It's like you know, Australia just happens to be the world's largest island, but, I mean, the smaller the island, the smaller the thinking tends to be. Yeah. And it's not a question of geographical size. It's the, it's the proportion of population and the ideas that come up bump up against each other mm. in order to create bigger ideas. And it's a bit of a Darwinian type concept where, I don't know if you know, but Darwin, Darwin when he discovered sort of the theory of evolution, was on an archipelago. And he worked out that the island in the middle evolved faster than the islands around the edge. Mm. And it was because of the migration of the birds and the turtles and all the, you know, all the other things that the, when they crossed across in the middle, forced the evolution and growth of those particular Species. Species, yeah. So it's actually the culmination of ideas bumping up against each other that causes them to grow, to expand, to be challenged, and then to evolve. It's not the ones around the edges that have got the less challenge. Yes, right. And ideas are exactly the same. The the fact that ideas, the more ideas come up against each other in in closed spaces and and forced to bump up against each other, is where the real challenge about assumptions, values, visions, positions of an individual get exposed mm. and people then choose to evolve based on that or not. Mm. We have a double challenge. We've got a small population, but also on the periphery of a, of a geographic location. We're not in the middle of anything. No. It's and so by default, isolated. we are uh, complacent mm. because we aren't challenged in the same way that, say, someone in the middle of, I don't know, Europe might be or, you know. Middle of Asia, middle of yeah. Africa. Exactly. Middle of America, South America are the same. Yeah. I do think that that has definitely um, played into the passivity here. Yeah. On top of that fact, we've got no civil unrest, we've got no political instability, we've got a relatively strong economy, 
Like, it's very easy to compl be complacent. Um, I'm just looking down here and thinking, you know, what, you know, you've got a great team behind you at TED. Mm -hmm. You know, people are doing it for love. Mm -hmm. Really putting in the hours and working with you to create a, an incredible experience each, each year. Mm -hmm. um, but more and more I'm seeing tribes forming yep. who don't mind receiving negative attention mm -hmm. for what they've got to say. What do you think is happening there? I mean, a kind combination of, of things. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I think people now are more fed up. Yeah. And so they're much more likely to arc up. Yeah. Combined with the fact that we have technology that allows them to find each other, which we didn't have, say, 20, 30, 40 years ago. So, so connecting so much easier. Exactly. Mm. And therefore, those sub demographics, those tribes, if you want to call them that, are able to um, mobilise around an ideal that they feel is important to them. Mm. And get traction too. And get, yeah, and get the attention. Yeah. I'm cert I've certainly noticed it in the, you know, on, on the media, in media, Yeah. you know, certainly with events. As you walk down the street, there are different movements all the time. There are groups of them and I think, wow, what are they doing? Mm. Who are they? I've never seen them before. Yeah, it was fascinating. I was walking down the street not that long ago and the whole of Swanson Street was blocked up. There was police everywhere, yep. there was horses, and I couldn't, it was like, they were protesting against something, but I couldn't hear them because I wasn't there. sort of in the middle of it. Mm. So um, we Googled it, and we found all the information we needed about this particular protest through the Twitter stream. Fantastic. Nothing on the, nothing in Google that Google had found. Nothing on the news. Networks. Nothing on the news, exactly. I don't go to the news yeah, networks for news because, often. Because if you want that on the... Like, Real time. The, yeah, exactly. Real time. Social media is the only way to be able to do that. And, yeah. and I think that's one of the reasons why media is struggling for relevance. Yeah, well, that's partly why I was so interested in podcasting because I think you can be... It, it's borderline real time mm -hmm. and it's it's real conversations yeah. about what's really going on, not sound bites. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I watch the news. I'm not saying it's irrelevant. I'm yeah. certainly always curious about what's happening in the world but I do listen to the anchors and I think god you've given that person five minutes and what they're talking about is incredibly important mm. and you know I find myself feeling frustrated yeah when I watch yeah, it yeah. you know and I think yeah I I never thought I'd be someone that was following a Twitter stream but I do I do all the time to find yeah. my news now it's probably the only reason I stay on there it's yeah. the news yeah, yeah exactly yeah it's what's of, happening in yeah. real time exactly it's, it's that real interaction and I think people are craving also to belong somewhere. Mm. They're craving leadership and they're, they're, they're craving a clear direction. And it's easy, like I said, it's easy to get distracted, but I think the fact that you can have one thing that you can rally around, that you can unify underneath, is, is terribly important. And that was, that was one of the great strengths of nationalism. Mm. Um, even nationalism is kind of losing its relevance in some respect because we've moved into a global movement in, in, in an economy but um, but this it still has merits for that reason yeah yeah there's a lot of uh, I don't know it seems to be there seems to be a very mobilized far right at the moment which mm. is quite scary I mean, it is one of the things that's interesting out of that though is it's forced people who are on the fence to get off the fence and actually have active conversation around political issues like 20 years ago 30 years ago you, we wouldn't have had these types of conversations in the pub, in social settings. Yeah. It, it would have been off to the side somewhere. You know, mm. I think it's bringing it front and centre. And I think we need to stop being conformists and I think we need to stop sitting in the middle. Mm. I think we actually need to choose a position and move. Mm. And is that why you've, why you've chosen that theme this year as well yeah, in relation to absolutely. shaking up the event space a bit? Absolutely. I think the event space in particular is a little bit stale in terms of there's too much going on with too many neutral topics doing nothing specific. And nothing happening after the event either. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you, are there, is there anything that you're thinking that would change that event space a bit or shake it up a bit? you know in in the event space is going through a dramatic huge 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 change because mm. it's got to the point where the cost and hire and operating an event is 
prohibitively expensive. Yeah. Yeah. It's got, yeah. And so movements or, or tribes are, f- are trying to find other ways to connect and engage. And so it's making it even harder for these formal spaces to survive because they're meeting informally. Mm. And they're online. so, yeah, exactly. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword um, in that regard. In terms of uh, centralised movements, it's interesting. TED's kind of, in my view, got to the point where it's got enough critical mass where I think it's the sub-demographics within that tribe that have got more um, uh, legs, so to speak, from, from a growth point of view than the general event itself. I think everyone knows what a TED event is. I think everyone knows what a TED talk is mm-hmm. for most part. But the activation underneath that and the growth of the various sub-demographics, I think, is where there's a lot of potentiality. So diversity, human rights, women's issues, Mm. um, sustainability, refugees, Mm. LGBTQT, education, education, all these where people are deeply passionate and deeply involved and deeply engaged with these ideals, Mm. want to actually start mobilising around that. And they can discover each other in a At space like Ted, yeah, and then go ahead and and we've got numerous examples where that's happened, where businesses have started or movements have started yeah. or uh, groups have formed simply because they discovered a, a common ideal in in a broader space. That must be so inspiring for you that you know that you've had that you've been that trigger in yeah. a way. I mean, curating the event, you've been part of that. It was scene. always the intention, yeah, like one event will never do anything. Mm. And so while I admire a lot of these awareness programs around certain issues, whether it's equal pay or whatnot, the question is how do we mobilize post that event and engage and continue that conversation throughout the you know, throughout the year? Mm. How do that's, you that's, do that? That's that so can be really, really difficult. Yeah. Um, I, I think um, I think one of the keys to that is to have a strong and definitive position. I think that's why the Brexits and the Trumps have been so successful in terms of maintaining their longevity Mm. because they've chosen a position, whether you believe it or not, to fiercely agree or fiercely disagree with. Mm. And very simple arguments as well. So not hard to understand, not complex, not complicated. Exactly. Made it very black and white, which no yeah. issue ever is. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why it's able to be sustained over the longer period. Mm. Um, but like anything, there's a transition through that. You know, you, you start with sort of a general consensus and then you move to, a, to an end and then you swing back the other way. Well, mm. I'm hoping the pendulum is going to swing. Exactly. I mean, I think we all are. It will, will, but I, I think it will be a bigger thing that unseats it. I don't think it will be whether there'll be another Trump or another Brexit. I think it'll actually be, does government really represent the people anymore? Oh, I think we're leading there, aren't we? And I mean, it's a fascinating topic. I mean, if, you know, I was about to ask you, um, you know, what, what have you got a fire in your belly about these days? Uh, oh, that's a good question. Look, uh, everyone's I, I, talking about Trump all the time, and yeah. I think you know I don't think about Trump that much anymore. No. I was very angry when it first happened. There are fashionable things or relevant or topical things that come past our eyeballs every every single day. I, mm. I have always been and still and will always hold to the first principle. What is the origin of which that idea is based, and is that sound? Mm-hmm. So, so it's not whether Trump is good or bad or relevant or, or, or whatever. It, 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 it is, like I said, is government really serving what it proposes that it does? That's right. I would argue it doesn't. So then the next question is, well, what does? What does? And that is the conversation I think that will, that, that I think is going to be, we're seeing first generations of those types of solutions so um i think we're starting to really question this version of democracy yeah aren't we absolutely people don't feel that they're being represented even though people keep talking about it as a representative democracy well the problem is the people assume that democracy equals fair yes and and just yeah 
and the justice system I don't think there is such a thing as fair like mm. in nature everything is inherently unbalanced why because that's the dynamic that's that keeps nature. life together yeah, if nature. something is stagnant it dies yeah you take a stagnant stream it dies yeah you take a stagnant environment it dies yeah it is actually the dynamic that makes that ecosystem thrive and it's that inherent imbalance that causes that to happen mm. and people want to have balance and fair rather than you know valid and well considered yeah that's right and I, until everyone chooses well okay if this is not the right solution what is the solution and there are people trying to design systems around that to come back to one of our speakers we've got one speaker talking about the nature of money oh what's the what's his, his name steph yes. steph Koypus. and so He's talking about, well, I'll give you an example. Let's say there's three people in a room mm-hmm. and there's a $50 note. And I gave that $50 note to you for $50 worth of service. And then you gave it to the second person and that second person gave it to me. There would be $150 worth of value created, but only one $50 note created. So it's the movement of money that creates mm. its value, mm. not the accumulation of money. Mm. We've got huge disproportionate accumulation where 3% of the population have accumulated 97% of the world's wealth mm. and therefore control pretty much the entire direction of humanity. Mm. And that's what people are resisting. Mm. I was you know, talking corporatization and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and how how powerful those lobbyists are. Yeah. to distorting. I mean, Absolutely. I was talking to Steve Sammartino last week who, um, you know, is an author and one of the things that he talked about that's a real fire in his belly is the lobby, the lobbying system. Yeah. He thinks that political donations should be outlawed. Yeah, or it's fully really disclosed dis- at least. It's really distorting. Yeah. There's a know? great uh, TED Talk uh, by a guy called um, Larry Lessig. Yes, he's amazing. And he's got one one of his talks about talks about 147 people decide who the American president's going to be. Mm. Oh god. You know? It's terrible. For a country of 330 it? million, that's pretty you know, and we call that democracy. Mm. So, so this is the interesting thing. So, and it is that very unbalance that's creating the dynamic we currently see. So, if you, if you go back to those first principles and go, all right, well, what what is going to naturalise, normalise, mediate, whatever word you want to have, to a world that people are much more ready to accept, then the interesting conversation happens. Mm. And so um, if you're able to distill any idea down to its first principles, you can work out that these people are not necessarily pro-Trump. They might be pro-Trump in some aspects of what he believes. But they're not pro-Trump because they want to be pro-Trump. If someone else said exactly the same thing and it wasn't Trump, they'd be pro that person. Mm. So it's actually not pro-Trump. It's actually the ideal underneath that and what is the principle that has driven them to that point. Mm. And what's driven them to that point is the deep-seated unrest and dissatisfaction with the way they have been served as a constituent of the political system. Mm. And so we can point fingers at um, any political system Mm. and say that there are inherent flaws in it. And I think the cracks are starting to show with the inherent flaws of current democracy as we know it. Yeah, I think so too. We actually have another uh, speaker talking about, and I'll come back to the money thing in a sec, but we have Mm. another speaker talking about um, technically Magna Carta 2.0. Really? Yeah, so what is it about that caused King King John to recede the monarchy to the power of the people? And then what is that next iteration of that? And that's collaborative consumption. Mm. That's the that's the reason why Airbnb thrives and mm. um, you know Uber survives and and all these other collaborative you know but it's not quite there because it's still to the benefit of an individual. Yeah. So it's we have an improvement, but it's not final yeah. in its in its in its in its completeness. And so, well, what is that next version? And again, that's the first principle. Again, what is the nature of that that causes that conversation to happen? But coming back to the movement of money, how do you cause money to move? And so one of his principles is, well, let's pretend that if you put it in the bank, rather than making money or generating interest, as you call it, let's pretend it lost money. That would force the money to move. What would the people who had the money to do? They would give it to charity. They'd get a tax deduction. Yeah. Which means charity would never have to worry about where money comes from. Yeah. Corporations could pay their employees fairly. Mm. 
which means they've got a tax deduction. The people who are paid fairly would then spend more money back in the economy, increasing the movement of money, yeah. benefiting the corporates. Exactly. And governments. It's not rocket science, is no. it? No. But for some reason, the system has completely broken down. Yeah. And and it's, yeah, it's about understanding the nature of that first principle and what yeah. are the simple solutions we can have that can potentially create other opportunities. And more collaboration, you know, more democratisation yeah. of that financial system. Well, I guess that's what cryptocurrencies that's, are going to do. That's the, that's the humanisation. Well, the, the that collaboration yeah. is the humanisation of, of everything. Mm. You know, we're moving from a... I mean, economics, economics, the literal definition is the management of scarce resources. Mm. But if money was not, not scarce, then what would happen? Yeah. If food was not scarce, what would happen? I mean, you know, we've got no 8 wars. billion people on the planet mm. and we currently produce enough corn, just corn, to feed 8 billion cows mm. a year. What if that entire crop was just spent on feeding the human population? Mm. And maybe not eating so many cows. Well, there's a whole bunch of things. I mean, then you get arguments like, well, how would you ship it round and all that sort of stuff. But the, but first principles are. But the let's first principles, right exactly. Mm. Well, how we solve the ultimate problem. And then we have a high quality problem mm. of how we distribute it rather than a low quality problem of why do people have some and other people have nothing. Mm. Or all or nothing. Which is a low quality problem. Yeah, well, it's a problem that we're all talking about yeah. a lot these days. So, listen, um, I've ex I expect you've had some aha moments in your life mm -hmm. over time. There might be a few. Can you share what these were and how they were life changing for you? Ooh, look, uh, the first principles is probably one of them. Mm. The second one is trust your instinct. In in the decades that I've been experimenting with it, it's been 100% right. Wow. That's and it saved my life literally more than once. What do you mean saved your life? Uh, lots of things. I mean, the most obvious one was I used to um, do a bit of um, uh, car racing. Really? And one of the things my body said to me was steer this way and it avoided a major accident that I wow. probably would have been caught in the middle of. Ooh. But I mean, even stuff like, I might be turning you know, right to go into this. So one, another situation where, as I said, turn left to go, was the way to go to the city, but my instinct said turn right. And one of the things that I later found out that day was that there was a tram that had hit another tram and it blocked up that entire street for three or four hours and I would have been late to my meeting. Mm, mm. Um, there have been other times where I've turned a different direction and met people who I've been thinking about or hadn't seen for a long time. Yeah. That, that had a piece to the puzzle that I was trying to solve. Wow. Like it happens all the time. Like it just happens all Serendipity. the time. Serendipity. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when you're. It's called flow. I mean, this is not a new paradigm. I didn't invent this. Well, this is. Carl Jung talks about it a lot, doesn't yeah, he? Absolutely. And it's about being. Um, Present? Yeah, present. Not attached to the outcome and in line with the flow and just seeing where that takes you. It's extraordinary what happens. Nature, that's exactly how nature works. Mm. Nothing in nature is mechanically planned. No. It just happens. It is. It's not doing a checklist every yeah. night, is it? And that, that's where this whole is it good or bad is kind of, it depends on that point of view. Mm. Okay. So I know you talk about your dad a bit mm. and that he's been an incredible influence on your life. What, what do you mean by that? What, what's uh, I think it's his thinking in particular, mm. his principles and values that, that probably had a big influence. Uh, it's definitely the books he read and the stories he, you know, and the insights he told me out of that. Mm. Um, I think it's a bit to do with his background and his understanding of the way the world works. And his, his, his background was probably no different to any other Asian background. I had, an, not my dad, but I mean, I had another guy who was a Japanese teacher. And he, he was saying, he said, I have a question for you. So I said, sure. He goes, I don't understand this. He said, when our child is four, five, six, seven, you know, enough to understand you know, what we're talking about, we teach them about the ways of the world, the way it interacts, the way we can harmonize with it. You teach your kids Mary had a little lamb. Why? 
Mm. Why would you do that? It's a prime opportunity <laughs> to instill in them the, 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 the nature of, of, and the wisdom of nature and yeah. the values that are universal. Yeah. Why would you fill it full of stuff that's just totally irrelevant? Jack and Jill went up the hill. Yeah. And he was genuinely confused. Why would we do that? Yeah. And I, I'm genuinely confused, John. Yeah. But that, but that, <laughs> we got through the system. Yeah. And, 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 and he brings up a really good point, but this is the, the bit I was telling you about cultural overlay. What is culturally correct, yeah. quote unquote, and what is culturally irrelevant yeah. or humanly relevant? Yeah. If we go back to first principles about relevance at a human level, mm. it's universal. Mm. And it's quote unquote common sense. But yet we give ourselves excuses, usually steered towards because my culture or because I'm commercially driven. Mm-hmm. which are really poor excuses for doing evil. They seem quite basic, don't they? Yeah. Very two-dimensional. Yeah, and very short-term. Mm. Mm. Well, you see that a lot in corporate corporate Western society. I don't even want to say corporate Australia. It's in corporate mm. America as well. Mm. So, listen, what's a priority for you in the next few years? And if you only had one goal... What would that be? Oh, it's very easy. It's oh, yeah, good. I love that. <laughs> love an easy answer. It's not that complicated. Empower people to reach their full potential. Fabulous. And encourage them to do the same for others. Oh, love it. If everyone just did that one thing that they were passionate about, or that they well, felt was important. Yeah, but I mean, important is relative. Well, it's important yeah, to them. It's important today it's important to, to know how to read and write. It wasn't 400 years ago. Mm. It's important today to know how to cross the street safely. It wasn't 400 years ago. Mm. Important is a relative term. But empowering people to reach their full potential, and even if it's the wrong thing for them, I'm not saying teach them to be evil. What I'm saying is encourage them to, to follow what they believe is most right. Mm. Humans know what is right. I think so too. I believe that too. Over and above. I mean, yeah, think about the percentage of people. Unless maybe you've got a mental health issue. But even then, even then, our goal is to support them Mm, to have a high quality of life. Of course. And the people that have that mental health, they don't know any difference. So, relative for them, that is what they should and can be doing. Don't talk to me about the juvenile detention system. That's, Mm. you know. Exactly. They've got an ecosystem. They're not inherently bad. I would argue a lot of mental health wouldn't even happen if we had a lot of the silliness that's going on out there, mm. justifying why they shouldn't be supported, or it costs too much to get the medication or support, or you know, like oh, if sh- people were supported, they wouldn't be forced to do extreme things to get attention. That's right. For those people that have that inclination. Yeah, or feel so marginalised that they do turn to drugs. You know that they, you know, they may have poor education outcomes, or they may come from a particularly challenging background. And I think, you know, it's incredible when I. Look it's a at good argument for the universal income because, think about it. If you, a lot of people get into crime because they need the money. That's right. But if you had a universal income, then what would they then focus on? I think it would give them the opportunity to focus on that side project that they have thought about for years. That they may have the opportunity to have a crack at and and the government could easily implement that i agree i think is it sweden that are testing it at the moment yeah there's various yeah yeah and maybe maybe norway or denmark i can't remember but yeah it's a i'm watching the you know the conversation around that very closely Mm. and the money all, all, all the money would come from is the various people that currently have to get rid of their money if you have negative interest yeah because you don't want it in your bank account so you give X amount to charity, and then you might give X amount to government, and then X amount to people in need, and then. Well, as well, and at the end of the day, if tech is isn't any, is anything, it is giving them massive profits because they're able to downsize their labour force because of you know the you know robotics and AI and machine learning. So it's about also working out that model that is giving back because otherwise, who's going to consume their products? Mm-hmm. If no one's got the money yeah. to buy them, yeah, you know it's it's nonsensical. So yeah. it'll be yeah, it's it's really fascinating watching that that whole um, UBI mm-hmm. um, 
And I know there's a lot of people thinking about what happens with robotics and universal income and and the negative interest, and I'm more than willing to have that conversation with people (laughs) because I've been speaking to Steph for three years about all these things that come up in my brain, and he's got an answer for every single one of them. Well, then they need to buy a ticket to go and see Ted and Mm. have a listen to him too. But it's a fascinating conversation, and I think one that is a real change in mindset too that people are challenged by, but I think we'll find... um, addresses some of the key fundamentals that we need for a functioning society. I think we just need to have the courage to believe in what we believe in yeah. and test our assumptions, values and models until they're right. Yeah, and it's okay to test them. And that's what criticism is. Yeah, that's, well why that's... I that's why I've got no qualms with people criticising. Yeah, okay. Well, I like how you came full circle there. That was nice. <laughs> so listen what is the one what is one daily habit or routine that you have that you feel contributes to your success you've you know you're very organized John. Uh, you're a very busy man i think um i think i give myself the space to think hmm. and if you give yourself space to think you can think clearly and thinking dictates, you know, actions, and actions di- dictate results. Mm. The problem is, I think a lot of people move without thinking. The hamster wheel, doing, doing, doing. I'm yeah. so busy. I'm so busy, and I, I think, gee, I'm busy, but I'm mindfully aware that it's much more beneficial for me and for everybody around me to step back, take some time out, and have a think about what I'm doing. Mm. So you take your step back, that's your... Yeah. yeah. And have a good think, give yourself Absolutely. that time. Do you actually block time out in your yeah, calendar for I do. that? I do. Oh, I love that. So yeah. that's a good takeaway. Yeah. I'm not always successful, but I do. Yeah. Okay. And listen, I have to ask, I'm going to be asking everybody that I talk to, what do you think about the current state of leadership? And... What do you think we could be doing better at the moment? I think we've we've touched on it mm-hmm. throughout our conversation. Uh, well, what we could do about it, I think we don't have enough people committed to a solution. We just have a lot of people who just want to complain. Yeah. So that's the first thing. They're the ones watching Survivor. Yeah. The, the bit about what I think... I don't think we've had leadership at a local or international level in any country for decades. Mm. I think that's a fundamental problem. I think we've been lacking in courage in leadership. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't feel inspired. I did initially with Obama. Um, I yeah. was so inspired by Obama. I was so inspired by Gillard as well. I, it was incredible having yeah. a woman at the helm in yeah. Australian Parliament. And, yeah. you know, she had the courage to pass huge amounts of legislation and I think wow but since then there's been a real vacuum. No, nothing going on at the moment unfortunately. So what advice would you give to your 20 year old self if you had the chance to sit down and have a chat with him? Oh I thought about this I'm very polarised in this Okay. I, I, I bounce between nothing because I, I'm actually quite, I'm quite happy with the way things have turned out Yeah. Uh, at the same time um, and that's okay. You don't have to have yeah. gone back and thought, actually, I'd like to be doing that differently. But I do put there it out there. There was a period I thought too much. And so that, that became... Thinking yeah. rather than feeling? Yeah. No, no, no. no, no. you mean Not by you thought Well, I mean, I, I'd spend so much time thinking about what should I buy during the, I don't know, the spring sale that spring had passed. <laughs> you know, kind of that type of thinking. So uh, Distracting thinking. Yeah, so using thinking as an excuse to not act. Yeah. So there is a fine line, and like I said, it's relative. So you're now far more of an action man. Well, I, I, I drew a line about how much time I should think and how much I should act. Yeah. And I made sure that that was more balanced. Yeah. And I noticed that a lot of the time at the moment you do spend your time in that action space helping people with their brand, mm. you know, helping executives with their brand. What, what are you doing in that space? So it's interesting. The, the, I mean, while there's an interest in brand and brand storytelling, mm. I think there's a distinct lack. It's more around what are the mechanics of good speech craft as opposed to how do you connect with the human. So 
brand story is about how do you connect and engage in a compelling way yeah. that builds rapport and trust in short periods of time. So I touched on relevance and engagement as one of those models, but and about content context and intent is another one of those models. Mm. But it's really around how do you step through a model where you communicate at the high level and at the deepest levels and still have people be able to follow you. And so there's another model which we don't have time today to go through that, that, I, that I talk about that allows people to do that very, very quickly. Oh, fabulous. Well, I'd love for you to come back and talk about that. All right. We can do that sometime. Fantastic. Well, I'm so happy to have had you on People My Dog Would Like, John, because you do so much for Melbourne Thank in you. the idea space. And you speak and give back to younger generations so freely. You've got a great message in wanting to empower people to reach their full potential, encouraging them to do the same for others. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks so much for taking the time and letting us get to know you a little more. Best of luck for the TED event too. Thank you. Mm. I saw the beer. I loved that <laughs> on your Instagram. Yeah. On your Instagram posts, I'm going Great. as are many others. So thanks again. I really love what you do, and I hope we get to chat to you again in the future, perhaps Definitely. about some of the things we were talking about today. Sure. Thanks. Fabulous.